0: Great, thanks, Peter. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for being here. As uh, Spencer said, Merry Christmas, and Peter too. I'll be the third to say uh, Merry Christmas to you all. Glad you guys are here. Hope you're doing well uh, this this Christmas season. Uh, we are going to break from the Gospel of John for uh, for um, two weeks, I guess it would be. Uh, back on January 2nd, uh, but for a couple of Christmassy, Adventy type sermons here, we'll be in Matthew 1:18 to 25 today. Um, Just to kind of like give a little bit of a setup for where, um, kind of where we're coming from in regards to Matthew, uh, sort of in relation to John. So I know a lot of you, maybe some of you have not been here for that. So um, kind of catch up a little bit. We started the series in the Gospel of John in early October. I mentioned how uh, traditionally many Christians have likened the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which begin the New Testament, to the four living creatures uh, who are seen uh, around Ezekiel or God's throne in Ezekiel's vision uh, in, in the Old Testament. Um, this is a uh, maybe kind of hard to see picture of that, but uh, the four creatures being uh, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. John is traditionally likened to the eagle. We talked about this a few months ago uh, because of his uh, kind of higher take on the gospel, his heavenly uh, vision of, of the gospel in a sense. He's also different than uh, the other three creatures who um, walk on land uh, so, John is a different gospel in a way, complementary, of course, not contradictory, but, um, but a bit different. So, he's traditionally likened to the eagle. Uh, Matt, uh, Matthew, though, is likened to uh, the man or the human. Um, the idea there being, at least in part, that he, uh, he starts with a genealogy uh, and uh, a pretty lengthy one, and he also begins with Jesus' birth narrative, which tells us how God became human, how God became man. So, traditionally is, under, is understood as kind of likened to, to that angelic being who looks uh, more, most like us, which is kind of interesting. So John's take then on the incarnation uh, when God became man uh, consists of no nativity scene or birth narrative, but just simply uh, the statement or the phrase, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John 1.14. If that's the heavenly or mystical side, you could say Matthew gives us more of the human side. Of the same story, but both of which together remind us that in Jesus we have both. We have the union between heaven and earth. And so today we're going to read from Matthew 1, 18 to 25, looking at a part of Jesus's birth narrative and this idea of how shame is accounted for and covered at Christmas time, among other themes uh, as, as well. That'll be kind of our 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 big spot that we'll kind of park at and really talk about today. So let's read it in full, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. All right, so a couple of angles on this today uh, that will, I think, both kind of help us to get at this idea of uh, the covering of shame that, that I think for all of us should come with Christmas. And this is true for all of you, whether you're Christian or not. Uh, it's really the same idea, but we'll kind of talk about this from a variety of angles today. Um, the first, we'll look at this idea of like father, like son. I want to read verse 19 again. It says, Her husband Joseph marries a, a husband here, so they're betrothed or engaged, but um, it was an ba- ba- a, a effectual marriage, basically, so that's why divorce is talked about here uh, in that culture. It was still considered a divorce, even if you were engaged to be married. Uh, there was that, that level of commitment. A little bit different than today, but if that's confusing, just so you know where um, this is coming from. But verse 19, um, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly so uh, if you kind of missed it, basically what happened is she 's a virgin they're engaged they they had not slept together yet, um, which would have been um, uh, which would have uh, or for, for in joseph 's case anyway, he looks at Mary and she 's pregnant, so he 's thinking, what am I supposed to think and this is kind of a sign that she 's been unfaithful. Um, they had not been together yet, as it says here, and so um, he uh, seeks to divorce her, and so, but unwilling, to, the, the idea is that she's she, a just man, he's righteous, and he's unwilling to put her to open public shame, and so he could have done that, but um, unwilling to do that, he does this sort of behind the scenes, and kind of quietly, so. Um, but I mentioned before Matthew 1, kind of back up here a little bit, um, Matthew 1 starts with a, right before this passage, a long genealogy that stretches back into the Old Testament, which we did not read today, but Joseph is a part of that genealogy, and One of the reasons genealogies exist in the Bible is to teach us theology uh, and to highlight familial resemblance in different ways in kind of a prophetic, anticipatory manner. So the idea being that those who came before Jesus, especially those in his genealogical line, resembled Jesus in different ways and prepared the way for him in some way. Uh, Think like Abraham or Jacob or Judah or Boaz or David to name some of of the big players, but there are many more. So when it comes to Joseph, then, the the same line of thinking applies. Even though he wasn't the actual father of Jesus, God was, he is in Jesus' theological lineage, according to Matthew. So Joseph's actions, then, are not simply an example of how to resolve conflict in a marriage, uh, nor are they simply a signpost for when divorce is allowable. Um, Although I would say, you know, if you're a husband, say, and you're thinking, well, Joseph's actions are quite striking and they actually are meant to be Joseph's actions here are kind of above and beyond what you might expect from like your average husband whatever that means Uh, he to seek to seek to resolve this issue in a quiet manner and sort of cover up a a sin kind of a grievous sin really even though we know we know she she didn't sin because what's in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit Jesus but he didn't know that right and so his actions are really high here they're very notable and, and godly. And so if we're, if we're like a hu- husband or a wife, but we're thinking as a married, you know, I want to take note of how protective Joseph is here of Mary. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Uh, even when he, when he thinks he's been sinned against, he covers rather than belabors. And we could spin off on that all day really and talk about forgiveness and how love keeps no record of wrongs and how Joseph here is a human like us, is kind of a signpost of an example of those kinds of things um, as, as well. Um, but, but Matthew 1 is not primarily about that, at least in the way we, we might think. It is, but I would say it's a starting point, not an ending point. Because this passage isn't re- even really about Joseph, ultimately. It's about Jesus, who is not just the one who's born here, but who is uh, the one who's... Um, whose like, characteristics Joseph is, is basically embodying. He's, the, the idea being that Jesus comes from the genealogical line of covering sin rather than exposing it. Like If you know the story in Genesis 9, like Shem, who's also an ancestor of Jesus, covers his father Noah's nakedness rather than exposes it. Uh, and so the reality is, all throughout the Bible, Jesus comes from this genealogical line of covering up nakedness and covering up sin, covering up problems, covering up shame rather than exposing it because there are plenty of genealogical lines that come from that strand as well. But Jesus doesn't. He comes from the line, the pattern, the anticipation of covering and absolution rather than exposing. Romans 10.11 gets at this idea where it says, everyone who believes in him and Jesus will not be put to shame. Romans 5.5 says, hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So um, this kind of coming at it from more of a prepositional standpoint, uh, but same idea, right? That everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus will not be exposed. Like their sin won't be exposed. They won't be put on a platform and paraded around the town for how bad of a person they are because that's not what Jesus came to do. He came not to condemn, but to save, John 3 says, not to open up and expose, though in the gospel we see what we bring, which is nothing. We see how great of a cost it cost God to save us because our sin was that big. In, in the gospel itself, we're not being laid bare. We're not being stripped down, but we're being covered up, the Bible says, more like, uh, like the robe of Christ, or like a robe does, but it's called the robe of Christ's righteousness elsewhere in, in the Bible. So, so the Bible says that, that Jesus does this. He comes from this genealogical. Joseph's then a sign of this, a whisper of this, but Christ is the reality. Because what Joseph is doing is imperfect and temporal. But what Jesus does is eternal. It's, uh, it's the perfect version of what his earthly father Joseph is starting to do, which is to be a coverer and to, to, to diverge and, and to send around us accusation and nakedness. But the way that that happens is through the cross. And so the way that Jesus takes our shame is by essentially taking it on himself and diverting it away from us onto him. So we don't just talk about then, you know, the idea of, of shame or guilt or, or sin or punishment circumventing us. We talk about it going on to Christ. He's the one who is our sin bearer. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But by dying a shameful death in our place, he diverts shame for, from us. And by forgiving us all of our sins, knowing us fully and yet forgiving us fully, he takes away uh, this shame. Or to go back to Romans ten uh, and also five, when his love is poured out into our shameful hearts, when his love is done, is it does that right? When when we know that he loves us and that fills our our vacant hearts, we don't have to be afraid anymore. I read an article this past week uh, from Asher Nayana Zagi. That's my best crack at that last name. Uh, wrote an article, uh, Gentle Joseph Meek and Mild. It's in this month's um, CT Magazine, If some of you guys get that. But uh, he talks about Joseph uh, from an angle, I think, that helps us see this, where he says, Joseph's spirituality as a man was of such a kind that he was able to value the will of the lawgiver more than the law. Uh, which in this case was to go against, uh, from Joseph's perspective, was to go against the particular laws of divorce. The the law of Moses in the Old Testament basically prescribed execution by way of stoning in these types of situations. Mary should have been stoned. Uh, Joseph is saying, um, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, in that, he becomes also uh, a signpost of Christ. Christ came to go around the law, to give us a new way, uh, to not bring uh, upon us the... uh, the punishment and the consequences for our sin but to absolve us to forgive us and to cover us Uh, but in so doing the law was broken Uh, in this in this particular instance Joseph is breaking the law he's not doing what it required uh, by way of uh, publicly shaming uh, Mary clearing his name and allowing her to be uh, executed if that's what uh, the Jews would have wanted to do which is probably what would have happened so Um, So even though it becomes clear that Mary did no wrong, at this point we have to kind of understand this from Joseph's perspective. Joseph didn't know this at first, right? And even in the dream, he needs to trust God more than himself because at that point, it's basically the angels speaking on God's behalf, of course, uh, words versus what he sees, right, with his eyes. He needs to trust the, the heavenly vision more than his own heart. And so Joseph's actions are... What we might call law usurping here. So go back to this quote, uh, both in the way that he was set to divorce Mary, but not in the way that the law prescribed, but also in how he chose not to eventually divorce her in trusting God. So the idea with all of that is just to say that the law punishes and grants consequences and brings shame because we can't keep it. But Joseph is a sign that grace absolves us and covers. Uh, The law remembers, but blood forgets, because love keeps no record of wrongs, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says, right? So see, when you have shame and guilt before another person, because we can understand this on a human human basis as well, when we have shame before another person, the only way to have that truly fixed and and absolved is for that other person to say, it really is okay, like we're really okay, Uh, I love you. And I won't bring up that, that issue ever again. I, I, I will treat you as though you had never done it. I think I shared this story with you guys before, but my brother-in-law, who's a pastor at Hope Community Church downtown, uh, CORE, he, um, he had a story in the early days of him being a Christian and a part of that church uh, where he said, I made a huge mistake. I think he was an associate pastor at that time. I can't remember if he was an intern or what he was doing, but made a massive mistake. I won't go into it. Uh, <laughs> You'd just kill me for that probably, but I'm not, it's this, this actually a good story, so, but it, I didn't even really remember what it was, but I remember it was significant where it hurt a lot of people, it was unintentional, um, it sort of like um, brought some chaos to a meeting or something like that, but it was significant. But the senior pastor, uh, Steve, at that time, he, he said, "Core would say, this just changed my life when he took me aside and he helped me to see that, but then he ended the conversation by saying, I promise you I will never, ever bring this up again, ever. And Corey said, that completely changed my life. And it, it shaped my relationship uh, with him. It expressed the gospel to me. And it shapes now how he interacts with people that he leads and, and so forth. So I was helpful or not. But I, it, it, for me, it was shaping, too, to hear that story. And, and as I might interact with and lead people who have made mistakes as well, and, when, and I hope others might show me the same kind of grace, too, when I make mistakes. But that's the, the, the reality is in all of that that that's how God is to us. Like, he, through the gospel... Says, it's okay, I love you, and I'm going to treat you as though you've never done it because I've absolved you of it. I've taken the brunt for it. I've died in your place. So justice is done, but the weight of the law, in consequence, has fallen on me. And so through that, God's saying, I'm taking on the pain, the, the, um, the chance for vengeance. I, I'm laying down and actually kind of on myself. So that now, like, through my son and through the, what the, the epitome of Christianity really is, I'm saying that I'm coming with grace. I'm coming into the world with love. And it's, it's dis- decidedly apart from law. And, and Joseph, then, is a sign that that time is now here. The way he's treating Mary uh, is a sign that that time is now here. And his son, Jesus, will be the ultimate one to inaugurate it for all of us. Another sign uh, of this idea is in the virgin birth. Um, I put here the doctrinal necessity of the virgin birth. This could be like a whole class, which I'm not going to go into. There are many reasons why the virgin birth is an essential Christian doctrine, Um, but one of which is because how it exemplifies grace. Uh, So we have things like fulfilling scripture. We have things like it allows for Jesus to be fully God and fully human at the exact same time, uh, which is a core uh, orthodox doctrine. Christian teaching. Uh, But we also have this idea of how it exemplifies the power of God, grace at the expense of ours. Because we might ask, did Joseph work to bring Jesus into the world? Was it Joseph's decision? Did did, did he and Mary work to produce uh, Jesus? And and of course, the answer is no, right? Uh, So it's no surprise that that Christians who deny, progressive Christians maybe, who deny the virgin birth, end up veering into uh, all kinds of traps, but into ultimately works-based theologies of some kind, not simply because they de-emphasize Christ's deity, but because they maybe unknowingly associate Jesus' entry into the world with human effort. The virgin birth is foundational because it's a sign of what the gospel would later come to be, and that is the good news of God's work at the expense of ours. That he came to save people who were self-deifying, patting themselves on the back, and striving to be good enough to turn God's head and earn his favor. But if the first glimpse of Jesus in the world was to be born of a virgin, and no one could take any credit for that whatsoever, even his parents, then it was this bright, neon flashing sign that blinked and screamed grace to us. over the, over the nativity, over the pages of Matthew 1, the pages of Luke 2, uh, the, the birth narratives, over the pages of the prophets who foresaw these things, over the pages of the New Testament, over the pages of our heart, it screams grace that God is saying, I'm coming to bring a salvation that you have nothing to do with. Nothing you ever do as a non-Christian or a Christian will contribute. Nothing. That's why he came through a virgin. Because God did everything to conceive that child. Joseph and Mary did nothing. It happened by the power of God. Like your salvation happens by the power of God, by God willing to save you, by God sending his son to die in your place, not in response to what you've done. Nor does he maintain it over you based on how you reciprocate it back to him. This is why we need the virgin birth. If we lose the virgin birth, we lose everything. The gospel's gone. Because if you don't have the virgin birth, you have to bring in the idea of human works and human effort, which contribute to the movement of God in the world. Do you see that? That's why we need it. Many other reasons as well. But this goes back to the idea of what Joseph is doing as a law usurper, as one who's not doing what the law required, which would bring death in consequence and public shaming. But he's going around it to say, this is a new way. The law brought those things, but I'm bringing something different. The earthly father of Jesus, this is again a signpost, a whisper, but Jesus is doing this for you and me at a much higher level, a level that will last forever. And so so the virgin birth then is is required for these reasons. It's It's a necessary underpinning of what the gospel would later come to be. So we can rest, so... We, can, we don't have to cover our own shame. I don't know where you guys are coming from today, like this Christmas season or beyond, um, but I know you have shame, or you will, or you have, or you have guilt. Um, but the gospel says you don't have to cover that. In fact, you can't. Uh, Mary couldn't herself, right? Mary needed someone outside of her, her husband, to do that covering, right? Right? Just like you and I need someone outside of us, God, to do the covering. It's not your responsiveness, your moral acuity, your ability to keep God's laws and commandments. It's simply him who does the covering through his son's shed blood. Nor do you have to learn to forgive yourself. This is a common thing that uh, people say a lot, right? It gets syncretized with uh, Christian teaching uh, sometimes, even in churches. But the Bible never says you need to forgive yourself. Stop it. You don't need to do that. Uh, Chad Bird says in his book, Night Driving, uh, don't make yourself the axis around which forgiveness rotates. Don't make yourself, in your ability to forgive yourself, equal with God's power to forgive you through his son. Don't think that highly of yourself. You don't have to forgive yourself to be saved. You may never. It's not the point anyway. Like, who are you? To forgive sins. Don't the Pharisees say that in Mark 2? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All. Oh, well then what does that make us? See, it's not about forgiving yourself as if you need that. Christianity is the Christ, Christianity says that Christ is that axis. He is the, the cross is that axis, that, that spinning axis around which the forgiveness of sins rotates. He is the sun of the solar system is. The sending of God's Son into the world to offer that forgiveness. So, so all this means those things and more. We don't have to. We can't cover our shame. We don't have to. We don't have to learn to forgive ourselves anymore. We run to God instead. But this is saying God is here at Christmas to right all wrongs and to cover our sin forever. You also see this idea uh, in, this will be the last section we look at in verses 21 and 22, the two names of God, um, the Son of God, I'll read this again. It says, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you look at these two names, Emmanuel and Jesus, they effectively mean these two things, right? God, it tells us. It means God with us and God saves us. Um, But you see how both are necessary for our understanding of the gospel, right? If it was just Emmanuel, without any notion of salvation, the the only thing that we could really take from it, implication-wise, if we were seeking to draw a lesson from it, uh, not to mention our wholesale understanding of what Christianity would really be, but it is that we too should live uh, an incarnational life uh, around others, that we should bring the good in us out to the bad out there, uh, which is really another way to describe secular humanism's best intentions. And, and of course, Christians have, we have a category for this in one sense, to be sent towards a lost world as God first sent Christ, it's from John 21, but again, Without the underpinning of salvation from sins, it just becomes about making this world a better place. That's all Christianity is to people who uh, deny the cross or deny the name Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth like it's just a name, but what it means, right, which is to save people from their sins. Like if if we strip down all of that to like nothing, where we don't have the deity of Christ and his full humanity, if we don't have his name, his his name meaning to save people from their sins, if we don't have the virgin birth, then really all this is about is making this world a better place. That's really all we can take, even if there's Emmanuel. Even if it's God with us, that's about all we can really draw from that. But God had bigger plans, right? Plans to save us from our sins at the highest of cost to himself. In fact, you don't really see the idea of making this world a better place in the Gospels. Like, you don't, that's not really a lesson. That's not a direct quote anywhere in the Bible. That's, that's not like a main lesson you get. Instead, Jesus seems more interested in tearing things down before he builds them back up. Whether that is our own notion of what good is, our own notion of how sinful or not we are, to kind of tear down these self-perceived notions, or to ultimately, to tear down himself, right? That's the biggest thing. He wants to tear down as his own body on a cross and remake everything through that destruction. Uh, Mary shows this as well. We talked a bit about Joseph uh, in the lineage of Jesus being uh, a direct ancestor, I guess you could say, uh, the earthly father of Jesus, at least theologically. Mary uh, also is, uh, d- does this, and we see that a little bit more in Luke's, Luke's account, maybe in some ways. Um, who highlight, highlights Mary a little bit more than Matthew does. But here it's interesting, too, because Mary shows us uh, this idea of one who bears. Uh, Do you notice that when it said that it, the angel said Mary will conceive and, quote, bear a son? Uh, and so she typifies Jesus as the one who will uh, bear a son, but a type of the one who would come to uh, bear our sins. First Peter says he himself, very similar language here to to Mary, uh, bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Uh, By his wounds you have been healed. Uh, Mary also, in some ways in this story, she's considered a sinner even though she wasn't. Right? Uh, in that way, Mary serves as a very helpful theological forerunner to Christ because it's exactly what he came to do. Uh, Mary, who didn't commit adultery, was considered an adulteress, at least temporarily. Uh, Christ, who was, uh, the, who was perfection, who was the, the epitome of spotlessness, was considered and, and deemed a sinner on the cross, bearing sins in his body and saving us, So that Emmanuel might actually be good news and not a sign of judgment. If God is here and there's no, his name shall be Jesus, it's just judgment time. It's not good news. There's no reconciliation because we're enemies with God. Did you know that that's what this book says? That that God says that about us? That we are enemies to him? Jesus says that about us? We are sons of the devil? That we are enemies with God and we need to be saved and adopted? Uh, if it's just Emmanuel without Jesus, the name Jesus, then we, we lose it. It's gone. And so Mary, then, so Mary then becomes this helpful picture of one who is bearing Christ, but who pictures the one who will bear our sins, the one who will become sin for us on the cross. Second Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's saying, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He became a criminal. He was considered, strung up, next to the worst of society for you and me. This is exactly what's happening to Mary, albeit temporarily, in a much lesser way, right? Mary is a type of Jesus. She is a picture of the one she's bearing, just like Joseph, as a shame coverer. And that's the only way, then, not to have shame at Christmas time is to truly believe and know that it's been taken care of, right and diverted. It's, it's to know that God looked us in the eye and has said, "It's forgiven. We're okay. I've atoned for it. I've dealt with it. I will never bring this up again. In the gospel, there is no memory of our sins. there's no constant reminder like the laws of God brought the sacrifices brought up every year like the book of Hebrews says there's this annual reminder and stirring up of how sinful we were but in the gospel it's covered and the the only way to have that like Romans 5 said is through love law does not breed love but love breeds love And so the only way to have love and receive it is to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus. The law punishes and exposes and puts people in prison and judges them. But like Joseph, Jesus picked another way, chose another way, came to fulfill another way, breaking that system, going around it, and offering his blood and saying, I'm going to spill my blood for sinners. If you believe in me, you will be absolved. So no shame at Christmas time, it means all of that and more. It, it, it means he took away our sin, but he also put it on himself. He took the shame for our sins. Um, think about it that way, that when he's dying here, he's actually taking shame that you have over your sins, the guilt that you have over your life. He's becoming our sin on the cross. So it itself is actually being crucified and being paid for. And again, through it all, God says, I love you, I forgive you, I see you. John 1 says, Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace. Again, this, this, uh, this polarity is important. Consequence falls on him. And, and so a new law is here. Uh, the, the New Testament talks about there's a new kind of law now between us and God. It's called the law of Christ. And it's, it's ultimately him. It's here uh, to... To disobey this law, to disbelieve in this law, is to be damned. It is to be kept away from God. The the one way back, the one way out of the trenches of hell, the one mediator between God and man is him there. There's not two. It's not him plus a little bit of law, like what you provide or give back to him with your life. never says that. Jesus came and Christmas shows us this to allow consequence to fall on him, to to be an absorber, to to bring a new way, a law of love and and a gospel of reconciliation. And so God came to become like you and me in order to suffer for you and me, in order to save you and me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, God, for how it screams to us the gospel from a variety of angles, whether it be people like Joseph and Mary, whether it be the angelic pronunciation of what Emmanuel and Jesus means, especially held next to each other, um, or whether it means, uh, whether how it, uh, how it serves as a counterpart to places like Romans 5 and 10, um, we, we thank you, Jesus, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the way he was able to do that is because the cross was coming, because absolution was coming, because a new t- testament, a new covenant was coming where God would burst out of the temple and tear open the curtain and run out towards sinners because atonement had been made. And uh, so God, as we, as we sing this last song, as we go through this Christmas season, I pray that that would actually start to matter to us or maybe matter afresh for those of us that it's already mattered some to in our life. Um, but that it would me- be meaningful, that it would relieve us of shame and anxiety and just wondering what else do I just need to do today uh, to sort of um, ride that perfect moralistic arc up towards heaven, but just relax and know that I am loved to hell and back, way, way beyond what I could ever even dream. And um, I pray that that would actually happen by the Spirit this this Christmas. For our church, all those here visiting, um, for our city, we pray that uh, that Christ would not be just downsized to some kind of uh, Mother Teresa figure, but he came to die in our place. He was a lamb. He was a substitute. He was a bleeder. He was a perfect man who was deemed a criminal for criminals uh, like us. So we thank you, Jesus, for that uh, and more. Thank you for the newness we have this season. Uh, we pray for relief and salvation and hope and love. In your name we pray. Amen.